There's a battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I'm so glad you've tuned in here on Ladies Can We Talk, where we embrace and protect the exceptional identity of America. I want to say a happy Memorial Day weekend to everyone. And I've gotten numerous reminders from people that, as we all know, Memorial Day is really to acknowledge the uh, people who served America, men and women, and who lost their lives in their service to this country. And in this uh, opening segment, uh, in the Speak Up for America, I want to talk about what Memorial Day means and contrast it with what President Obama had to say when he visited uh, Japan recently and, and actually laid a wreath at Hiroshima. But Memorial Day, stop and just say thank you for every single person who has given his or her life in the service of this country. You know, contrast, we had Armed Forces Day two, one or two weeks ago, and that's kind of for everyone's ever worn the uniform. And then Veterans Day, a separate holiday. And I love that we have separate holidays for all these things. Veterans Day is to thank people who have who did come home from their service and are veterans. But on this Memorial Day weekend, I want to say that I thought that was such a really insightful window into liberal minds the liberal mindset left-wing thinking when you look at the comments that president obama chose to make when he went over to hiroshima and i know we all know this but hiroshima and later and or hiroshima if you're the intellectual type um and then a few four days later nagasaki were the places where america dropped the um the bomb that ended world war ii and I think that just a couple things bear pointing out because it has to do with what is so wrong with the left wing mindset about America. And I know it's very easy for people to say, oh, everything that President Obama does, or the right criticizes, Republicans criticize. And I, I don't want to, and not that way, and I don't want to be that way, but you have to call people on things like this. President Obama went over to Hiroshima, and at the time we dropped the bomb that ended World War II, it was at a time, uh, this was following the loss of lives, of course, of, of you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. It was well after the Japanese had chosen to, in a completely unprovoked attack, drop a you know, attack and do the attack they did at Pearl Harbor. There are varying numbers and claims about the number of lives lost, but you know, it's somewhere in the range of 3,581 casualties totally in Pearl Harbor. And that wasn't even a, a battle of a war. That was just, we call it a terrorist attack. And so America was drawn into World War II and the history of atrocity by the Japanese uh, during World War II that is recounted in many stories uh, coming out this weekend. They include things like the atrocity, uh, the Pearl Harbor, we talked about the Bataan Death March, which many students, I hope, still learn about in school. I believe they do. But literally the most brutal conduct imaginable engaged in by the Japanese forces during World War II. Just, I mean, they've made movies about it. Just the incredible cruelty, not for the purpose of rounding up and forcing surrender. These were people who had surrendered to the Japanese and still the violence of the Bataan Death March, this 100-mile march to a prison camp on foot, the torture that happened. And I raise all this to say this. The problem I have with what President Obama said at Hiroshima was it is the same problem the left has on many issues today, and that is the moral equivalency of all things. President Obama 
seems to not know his history or seems to not be willing to deal with reality because he spoke about what happened, the dropping of the bomb of, um, by America, the bomb that ended, ended World War II. Um, we dropped two nuclear bombs in 1945, and he spoke about that using terms like describing the motive for that as nationalist fervor or religious zeal. And then he went on to talk about this ending of the dropping those bombs grew out of the same base instinct for domination or conquest that has caused conflicts among the simplest tribes and old pattern amplified by new capabilities and without new constraints. What he's saying is he is he didn't say apology because he'd promised he wouldn't say apology and he knew he'd be mocked and attacked if he did that. But he more or less said that the conduct America engaged in in dropping the nuclear bombs at Hiroshima and then waiting a few days to see if perhaps Japan would surrender. And then when they didn't, dropping the next bomb, that was the um, that act was somehow he would be willing to describe it as something in, such as nationalist fervor, religious zeal. He can't be honest enough to say that Japan was the aggressor. Japan started this war along with Germany and Italy. Japan was responsible for the deaths of millions of people as the aggressor with no noble motive. It was the the motive to take over the world, to be part of the dominant force in the world uh, along with Germany. Japan's conduct was reprehensible throughout the war. And while Japan has apologized for some of the atrocities, people on behalf of Japan have apologized over the decades since that time. The idea of Speaking about America on Memorial Day weekend, the weekend that we remember the greatest sacrifice that can be given by so many Americans in service of our country, and speaking about America as though our conduct in dropping that bomb was somehow, you know, religious zeal or nationalist fervor is an outrageous disrespect of our soldiers. This is Debbie George Addison. Ladies, can we talk? This is my opening Speak Up for America segment. The facts matter. And what, what, what President Obama spoke about in Japan was wrong. I'll tell you, folks, we have a great show uh, lined up. Come back after our break. And we're going to talk a little bit with a gentleman from the American Veterans Center. Talk to you after the break. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Well, I really do want to. We're going to several ways in this show tonight honor Memorial Day weekend and honor those who have given the ultimate sacrifice to defend this country. And um, I spoke in the first segment about the importance of not agreeing with the left-wing ideology that says there's kind of moral equivalency of all things and America's policies militarily and, and throughout history, uh, not agreeing with the left will always try to portray, which is that, you know, we're half the time we're the bad guys. We have just as bad motives as they do, because that's not really true. America has an astoundingly noble military history. Not perfect, but an astoundingly noble history of essentially always standing for good, standing for liberty, standing up for what people throughout the world really want, which is freedom, and then coming home. We don't conquer and take over places. We come back home. We have on the, on the uh, one quick caller today, which I'm excited about, uh, and I just learned about this organization called American Veterans Center, and we have on the line Tim Holbert, who is the executive director. So hello, sir. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for coming on. Well, I would love to have you. You know, you guys do a parade in Washington, D.C. I guess I want to have you tell us about that. Parade is tomorrow, right? That's right. Well, actually, it's the National Memorial Day Parade um, uh, coming up tomorrow afternoon here in Washington, D.C. This is the 12th year for it. Uh, It's turned into a great tradition, not just for Washington, but for the entire country uh, to really call attention to the true meaning of the day. So we're excited about it. Well, that's just, I love, love, love that idea. I love Washington, too. I love it. It's their kind of symbol of the, um, our, uh, where our country's headquartered and all that, where our capital is. Can you tell us, what does America, I know you're doing the parade and I want to talk more about that, but what does American Veterans Center do? What is your organization all about? Sure. Well, we really exist to, to our tagline is guard the legacies and honor the sacrifice of our, our veterans from uh, World War II, really, through the present day. So we do documentary programs throughout the year. Uh, speaker programs where we connect uh, uh, future military leaders, ROTC students, um, like the students from our military academies, to heroes from earlier generations to kind of teach them about leadership, uh, virtues of, of, of service, sacrifice. Um, uh, and then, of course, we do big public events, most particularly the National Memorial Day Parade. I just love that, you know, the honor of the legacy, especially I will say, I think there's been a loss in the American public education system of young people really learning our military history, and just what a sacrifice so many people make. And it's not just the soldiers, but their families, their parents and spouses and children make because some people are willing to go and fight. So to, so to memorialize that, to put it in form that people can read about in the future, I love that idea. It's fabulous. Well, and that's really what we try to do, is, is to make these stories of, of service, of sacrifice, of honor, of valor, uh, you know, personalize them, make it something that, that everyday Americans can relate to. Uh, because, you know, on a day like Memorial Day, it's not just about statistics of, of the number of fallen. These were real flesh and blood people, Americans who stepped up uh, when, you know, when they were called, and ordinary people who in so many cases did extraordinary things. And that's something that I think we all need to take some time to, to, to really recognize. I love that. So tell our listeners, if you would, the time and where does the parade start tomorrow and who all is part of it? Absolutely. So the parade starts at 2 o'clock Eastern time tomorrow uh, here in Washington. Uh, runs right along Constitution Avenue. Uh, fittingly, it starts at the National Archives, the home of our Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, uh, and travels down past the White House, uh, the Washington Monument, ending really kind of near the, the uh, World War II Memorial. Uh, the parade's a moving timeline of American military history, so it tells the story of, of, of service and sacrifice going back to our very beginning. We have reenactors from the American Revolution, War of 1812, Civil War, all the way through until World War II when we start to have actual veterans uh, who participate. Uh, there's about 4,000 people in the parade, upwards of 2,000 veterans and active duty service members, uh, so it's really turned into this giant spectacular. Uh, several hundred thousand people come out for it, uh, it is televised nationwide. Uh, it'll be on the Reels channel, uh, cable and satellite. Uh, we stream it at nationalmemorialdayparade.com, uh, and military channel is streaming it as well. Uh, and then it goes out to our troops watching worldwide on American Forces Network. So anywhere you're at, whether you're in Washington or whether you're anywhere else to, uh, around the world, you can tune in and watch. I think that is just the darn coolest thing. I will confess, I even went to law school in Washington, and I love Washington. I did not know about this, and I love what you just described about that parade. It's so meaningful. It's not just a, 
kind of extravaganza, but really has substantive meaning, representing the uh, representing and t- teaching people essentially about the different wars people have served in and what it has meant for them. And okay, so I also noticed you have Oscar-nominated actor and humanitarian Gary Sinise. Is he be part of it? Absolutely, Gary has been a part of it. This is only the twelfth year of the parade. People think that it goes back. Uh, much, much further. But the, the tradition of a parade on Memorial Day in Washington actually died out during World War II. So we brought it back in 2005. Uh, Gary joined that very next year, right after it started. He's been with us every year since. So he's fantastic. Uh, he's joined uh, by Joe Montaigne, uh, uh, Tony Award-winning actor. Uh, he's been, Those two every year have been such great supporters. Um, but then we have folks like uh, Buzz Aldrin, legendary astronaut. A lot of people don't know he's a West Point grad. Um, uh, flew fighter pilot or flew uh, combat missions in, in the Korean War. We'll have musical performances from Miss America, uh, from country artists like John Michael Montgomery and Phil Vassar. Uh, Tony Orlando uh, will be out singing his uh, uh, famous songs. Uh, the most recent American Idol winner, Trent Harmon. So it, it is a fun event for the whole family that everybody can come out and have a good time with, but that also has this message throughout about the stories of sacrifice throughout our history. Just love it. It just sounds so darn cool. I'm speaking with Tim Holbert. He's the executive director of the American Veterans Center, who are putting on, along with others, a fabulous National Memorial Day parade tomorrow. So last shot here. Can you tell our listeners where they go online to hear more about this? Absolutely. Go to nationalmemorialdayparade.com. You can find everything about uh, watching on TV, tuning in online, uh, making a donation if you'd like, because this is really put on not by the federal government, not by the military. It's a small nonprofit that stepped up to put it on. How long so is it? You can support it that, that way as well. Okay, I thank you so much. Tim Holbert, thank you so much. I hope it's a great, sunny, beautiful day tomorrow in Washington. Not too hot. Thank you for calling in. Appreciate that so much. Okay. Thank you. So, okay, so folks, we have uh, a fabulous bit of music I want to play for you. And I'll tell you why I want to play it. But if we're rigged up to play it, go ahead and play it if you would, please. Trying to forget what he could not understand The last time he saw his brother He wasn't quite a man But he left home to fight a battle Somewhere in a foreign land And he received his brother's letters Whether sunshine or rain Okay, is that not the coolest music ever? I have to tell you that I brag on my show about our, our uh, bumper music. It is by Krista Branch. And that song you just heard, is a, the portion you just heard, is a new song that she just put up on her Facebook page. And her husband is the writer of the words and the music, and she's the singer. It's a fabulous tribute to Memorial Day. Krista Branch just does a great, great job. Um, just these fabulous, uh, you know, emotion-evoking, truly... Uh, 
patriotic, inspiring uh, music. I want to play that. And one last story to honor Memorial Day. Um, and I think I have time for it. This countdown clock isn't working right, but I think I'm doing the math. Okay. I believe we have time for this story, which is this. So this really neat story. Uh, there's an organization uh, that works with the uh, Pentagon trying to help bring home remains of soldiers that have been unidentified. And an amazing number I read today. There are actually 73,000 Americans still unaccounted for after World War II. I know we're talking about focus on World War II, and there are obviously many other wars our country engaged in and people lost. It just happened to be a lot of news on this story today, but uh, on this on World War II today. But this young man, they, they just identified the remains of a U.S. Marine um, who was killed in action in World War II in the Battle of, and I may not be pronouncing it, Tarawa, T-A-R-A-W-A. It's an, an atoll or atoll in the Central Pacific. And this young man was 17 when he signed up to go in the military, 19 when he was killed. His remains have been over there all this time. And this organization called History Flight. History Flight, they work with the Pentagon. So they they actually came across, they found these remains. They worked to locate all these kind of islands around, locate remains, identify them. And so this young man's remains were just flown home to Texas this week. This is a beautiful thing. Again, a commitment by the Americans to really celebrate and honor our veterans. So we're going to go off to a break here in just a moment. But I have to tell you that I have a guest in the studio tonight. And he's the author of the book, Cries of the Eagle. His name is Michael Nathanson. I've read this book. It'll keep you awake at night. I'm going to tell you that much. It's really great. Plus, it's a great read. Very, a, lot of, a lot of good messages about America. So talk to you after the break. You're going to love hearing about this book. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. As I told you before our break, we have a guest in studio tonight, which is almost so much more fun than over the phone because you can communicate. But this is the author of a book called Cries of the Eagle. And the gentleman who wrote this book is Michael Nathanson. He's right here with us. So hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here. And, you know, I um, want to just tell our listeners the briefest thing about this book. And I do want you to talk about it. But I love to read and I read a lot. And I have to read. I always try to read the books of authors. I'm going to have them on. And I, but I love reading fiction. It's just a lot easier to read. But I will read, you know, history and, and more straightforward political books. But this book is a beautiful combination of those things because it's a really grab you, keep you awake and not reading fiction, but it has a lot to share. Um, and so I'll just tell you the basic story is just this horrible Islamic terror attack happens in Texas. It kicks off the story and there's an FBI investigation, the characters, you kind of get to know them all and you kind of worry about them when you're not reading the book, like what's happening to them. So it's a very human side of all these different characters the fbi the investigation to this islamic terror attack terror attack so i want to just start with saying what made you prompted you to write a book like this well this is a story that had been on my heart to write for some time um there is such uh an amazing amount of of information disinformation and lack of information flying around in the world of uh, Islamic terrorism and where it uh, affects the world, where it has become uh, a, a very serious problem for the world. And so many people that you talk to, they really don't understand the history of Islam. They don't understand how that uh, religion was uh, born. They don't understand within the context of time where it began and how it expanded and uh, 
what their actual tenets are. And so in, in thinking to engage people in the dialogue and understanding what is really going on, I thought in the context of a good story, something that's interesting to read that will grab you. I'm a novelist, so this my work is a work of fiction, but I wanted to weave true historical elements in and today's headlines, something you could pick out from tomorrow's news, and have the reader get a little history, get a little understanding, uh, some knowledge that they might not have gotten already. Well, I, I would say you succeeded uh, times a million. I'll tell you the book, uh, I was so grateful to, that someone suggests I read it. And, um, you know, you get drawn into the story, as I say, it's a good, it's a test of a novel when you're worried about the characters. You're, you're thinking, oh, geez, I wish he wouldn't go in there without protection. Why is he going without a gun? I mean, and you're worried yeah. about them while you're going about your day. So it's just really riveting. And I also like you included, and I guess this is the way you went about it, but you included the FBI investigators trying to, for at first figure out who even committed this horrific crime, they um, end up having conversations with a professor about uh, Islam, about, you know, and so he, and this is when you were saying a moment ago, this is how you end up learning a lot in the context of a fun conversation, but lots and lots of information about Islam that I think, I, I think is needed and is lacking in America. I think so. I think we have to um, actually understand what we're looking at in the world today through the eyes of history, through the eyes of the three major uh, monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, understanding where they were born, uh, the time frame for their uh, coming into existence, and where history has taken them. And I think it's very important to uh, have an understanding of that. For each and every American, we need to know that. It is. And, you know, we have modern issues we can get to in a moment that bear on or they relate to the question of, you know, how much we understand about Islam. And then, therefore, what does that mean about decisions we make about Islamic immigration to America? How do we vet people to understand would they be the kind of people who might be tempted to do the San Bernardino type thing? Are we able to figure that out by vetting them? But I just think the history of Islam, I have to say, I think most Americans didn't know much at all about Islam until after 9-11. And, and I think a lot True. of people woke up and thought, what in the world, why would these people do this? And so I, I, mean, I think a lot of people are tuning in for the first time or since 9-11 and, and trying to understand it. You also had, right. yeah, you also had some characters uh, in the book. You had some Muslim characters who were clearly jihadists. Some were just fine with jihad. Some were cooperating with the FBI trying to, stop the or trying to uncover the problem so is it your sense that that's a, a realistic presentation of, of a muslim or the range of muslims in america or well i think so i think you have to consider that out of uh, well in america specifically we have a fewer number of muslims in america but percentage-wise in the world it, it's a religion with uh, some 1.6 billion adherents worldwide in over 50 countries You've got 50% of them that are religious but not devout. You've got 40% of Muslims are considered born into the religion by name only. They're not really practicing. It's family tradition. Some 10% are considered um, believing in the radical elements of Islam and espousing uh, the worldwide global caliphate ideas and jihad and the, the more violent aspects of Islam. That's a small percentage of the entire population. It's still a lot of people that have this. Well, that's the thing. I don't know if you just, uh, the number of, of Muslims in the world, and somehow 1.5 billion is in my head. Is that not right? I, I think it's expanded even a little beyond that. Okay, Closer so. 1.6 billion from what I've. Okay, read. so if you say, well, you know, only 1% of, of Muslims are jihadists or support jihad. Yeah. 
you know, I'm not a good mathematician, but that's a whole lot of people. I mean, that's a... That, that's a whole lot of people. And what I hope to show is that there is a problem. We need to be vigilant. Uh, America needs to be on top of the terrorism, which is not acceptable. I mean, this is a crime against humanity. It is not a crime just against America. It's brutality against humanity, which is not right in any way, shape, or form. But I wanted to show also that there can be, on a one-on-one individual basis of a one-man's heart, there can be a sound, patriotic American that happens to be a Muslim, that knows everything that's exceptional about America, that believes that we are a great country, that he is offended by what has taken place in his country and feels the need to step forward and say, let me do my part, let me help against this. Yeah, I, I love that character. And it reminded me, you know, there was a, um, a when Andy McCarthy was doing the prosecution of the blind shake, there was mm-hmm. he wrote about and wrote about it again recently, how much the prosecutors were helped, got cooperation from people in Islamic neighborhoods, Muslim neighborhoods in Boston. They actually thought it was a good thing to be in the mosques, meeting people, to have a police and a, mil- and a, a, a an American presence because they actually got lots of information when they had a presence in those neighborhoods because, you know, Muslims are the victims of other Muslims' violence. And so Absolutely. if you're, yeah, if you're a peaceful Muslim living in a Muslim-majority uh, neighborhood, you probably would like to be able to tell the police, you know, the guy, this guy down the street, he's the problem one. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have those relationships, then you're not going to have those conversations. That's true. That's true. Uh, you know, the dialogue has to come about where human beings are talking to other human beings and saying, this behavior is not right. I don't care you know, what religion you practice. This is crimes against humanity. It must stop. The world must unite against it. And... Uh, Within that context, there are some people that will rise up that say, yes, we stand for America. We stand for what we believe in here and work toward it. Yep. We're speaking tonight with Michael Nathanson. He's the author of Cries of the Eagle. The other great thing I wanted to mention, I love that you had in the book, was that the Christian faith of one of the FBI investigators really played a big role. And I, I feel like I don't want to ruin this story for our listeners, but talk a little bit about that. Well, Uh, There was a a Christian man who is uh, one of the FBI characters who, like many of us, uh, at times has trouble sharing his faith, the the belief in the gospel message that Jesus had for one and all. And it was a message of love and redemption that is universal. And, you know, at times, I think in certain settings, we don't know what to do quite how to approach a person and, and deliver that message. But here he had a man that was completely broken, that was at the worst place in his life. A former Muslim or a kind of a Muslim former, guy. Yeah, yeah, a kind of Muslim guy. <laughs> uh, but he, he, was, he, he was at a very broken place, and the FBI character felt a compelling urgency to deliver the gospel message to him, to show him there was love, there's redemption, in the gospel message. And I wanted to show that above and, and everything else really throughout the book is part of the story. I hoped it was a good story, an exciting story, but at the end, I wanted there to be the gospel message spoken. Yeah, I love that too. And I've often had that thought about, well, I know Ann Coulter, one of the uh, pundits of America, said early on after 9-11, I know the answer, we have to convert them all because they've all got to become Christian. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I do always think there's a, a right idea about not accepting that we just, we have to accept, people have accepted this dark um, and fatalistic view of Islam when you could share the gospel. And and you have to be decide whether you're comfortable doing that. We have like 20 seconds, but I love that you put that in there. 
Well, we're charged as believers to share the gospel one-on-one with individual hearts, people we know, people we meet, strangers. And why not share that with a, a Muslim? I love that. This is Debbie George Aslays. Can we talk? We're speaking with Michael Nathans, an author, Cries of the Eagle. Where can people get this book? It's available on Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, and I believe it's recently coming into some stores as well. It's just been out a couple of months. Woo, into stores. I love that. Love this author, and I really appreciate you coming tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And come back for our last little segment at the top of the hour, Cruise Through the News. I have stories you will not believe. Talk to the other side. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Okay, here's a problem. We only have 150 stories in a mere little two hours. But I try in this section of the show to do a cruise through the news and just hit some top stories. Um, And, you know, some of them, we're going to go in depth to a lot of stories in the second hour. But I just want to hit some of these things. I just find them all amazing. These actually uh, are things happening in America. I'll start with the most goofy one. And, um, I mean, it's really goofy. I almost hate to tell you about it. But did you realize that in California, Santa Monica College actually has a class in which the professor, along with a professor from University of Santa Cruz, which should tell you all you have to know because that's a way left-wing school, took a group of students down to the ocean for the adventure. In fact, the, the uh, subject matter um, of this class is called Ecosexual Sextravaganza and took them on a trip down to the ocean where the students were encouraged to marry, like M-A-R-R-Y, like you did to your spouse, marry the ocean. And they, they were taught to consummate the marriage by, by getting in with the water, being one with the water. And so I'm telling you, folks, you, you would think that, okay, it's silly, but you know what? These people actually did it. And this one girl had a statement how she used to just hug trees. And she would hug trees in Santa Cruz, but she, she would sort of ask the tree if it was okay if I hugged it. And then I feel their spirit or their energy or something give me a response back. And then I proceed accordingly, um, only as the a tree agreed she could hug it. Okay, these people, these poor parents of these kids are paying tuition, paying tuition so they can get drugged down to the ocean to marry the ocean. Yeah, your parents, your hard-earned income at work. Carrie's got a smart aleck comment I can tell. Smart aleck. What exactly was the cue that the ocean was giving consent Oh my gosh! That's that what is, I'd like to know. It's abusive of the ocean. Very good point. I think it was I didn't coerced. Don't you think? I think oh it was yeah. Coerced. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh oh. I think they don't need to be. Okay. I'm going to go to the next story. I'm not cruise through the news. This is another true story. In case you think America's lost, hasn't lost its mind. I can convince you otherwise. In uh, New York City, the New York City Commission on Human Rights has now offered official legal guidance. They have a policy requiring all employers, landlords, businesses, and professionals, you must use the gender identity pronoun preferred by the person you're speaking to. And it is a finable, as in must-pay-money offense. For example, if you continue to refer to someone as him or he, even though the person is in every way a male, but has let you know that they identify as female, you can get a fine, a fine up to, and trying to find the number is like $250,000 
if you don't use the gender pronoun and you have to use the uh, for a he or she that doesn't want to be here or she, you have to use Z as in Z-E-E-Z. And for a him or her, you can't say him or her, you have to say they pronounce it here. And so you can get fined for not using, like if you called Bruce Jenner Bruce, you could get fined $250,000 in New York City because you're not respecting their gender choice. Okay, I hope that this comes with name tags or some kind of <laughs> color coding because a lot of us are confused when we look at a certain individual as to what exactly they're trying to be. <laughs> there you go. I think there's about 56 genders available according oh, yes. to some of these people. How confusing could that be then? So many of them are fluid. It's fluidity Yeah, they're between gen- yes. gender fluidity. You really be in trouble. So we need color-coded name tags. They're going to be as confused as we are. Or they, yeah. they need like a fluid name. We can't well, be held responsible for not knowing who, what they are at that moment. But, you know, on, at, while this is so absurd, it's ridiculous, it also has language in these regulations talking about how not only are you responsible for what you say, but as an employer, if you permit an employee to continue to harass, it's, it's a form of harassment to not use the pronoun that the person wants used. So you can be fined as an employer if someone in your workforce uses the inappropriate pronoun after being asked, "Don't stop calling Jane she. You must call her whatever the term would be. And so this is, this is how crazy we're letting people self-identify. And then we all have to respect it or pay money to the government. And it's also, there, there's something really wrong about this idea that there are actually people who question gender identity as a, a, a confusion, as a real thing, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, yep. including uh, psychiatrists who will say, this is not a real thing. Gender identity is just, it's, it's a mental disorder. It's not a physical thing. There's, there's, it's not a real thing. But you Remember can be- the article you discussed, Debbie, uh, with the guy from Johns Hopkins University, how they quit doing the operations for this because it was not successful. They determined it was a mental disorder, and mm-hmm. he's, he's still on record as going uh, you know, with that today. And it's actually cruel of us to play along with a mental disorder. Instead of helping them get better and become less confused, we're contributing to their confusion. And to top it all off in this New York City thing, this is such a violation of your free speech. Mm -hmm. They're telling you what you have to accept, what someone else believes and say it, or or else mm-hmm. you're in trouble. This, I mean, we have people who can protest anything that they don't want to say. We have free speech out the wazoo, except for in this arena, you're told what you can't say in threat of... I, I just think it's amazing. Well, the and right I, to be offended now trumps your right to free speech. That's a very good point. I know. Okay, here's another cruise through the news story. So Hillary Clinton, you're always whining about how whether Republicans have a gender gap in the voting, how that a lot of women won't vote Republican. Well, I just like to point out that Hillary Clinton has a gender gap big problem Mm -hmm. with men voters big big problem Mm -hmm. she has for example on compared with donald trump men do not want to have to vote for hillary they don't like her and Mm -hmm. so clinton trails trump by 22 points among registered voters in america 22 points they don't trust her and even sanders you know sanders trails trump by only eight points so it's it's hillary being a woman and and, and the subject matter after subject matter, you know, who do you think can handle this? Men don't think Hillary can handle a thing. And you know what? There, so she's got, I mean, I want to quit talking about the gender gap for Republicans. Mm-hmm. Talk about it for her and, and, and uh, the gender gap with men for the Dems. Yeah, it sounds like Hillary's whipping out that woman card 
and the men are saying it's declined. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is okay. We like that one. Okay, and this is I don't know what if you have a comment on this one. It's a very interesting story. So Hillary Clinton, you know, she left the White House. They were dirt poor. Remember, she told us they were poor. Okay, do you realize this is just breathtaking? I wish I could get paid to speak at this kind of uh, level. In just it's slightly less than two years between April 2013 and March 2015. Do you know how much she collected in speaking fees? Okay, you guys want to guess? In two-year time. Millions. I think it wasn't it like 225000 per speech? Okay. I don't know what it was per speech. She collected $21,667 oh. for speaking. And she's terrible. She, she, her voice is like, you know, mm-hmm. fingernails on the, on the, on the chalkboard. Yep. And she never, and she said, ah, and she, $21 million. I'm more entertaining and right. I'm smarter. Absolutely. No. I think okay. that wasn't actually speech money. I think it was bribe money. Ooh, okay, heard here first. Okay, and then another story. I just can hardly stand this one, but we have time. This is great. This this segment class working great. So we have cruise through the news because in the second hour, we have a lot of really, really good stories, uh, but I want to just kind of jump on these uh, hot, quick stories. So Ben Shapiro, who's a brilliant, brilliant writer, conservative, he took to task a guy who wrote in the Washingtonian. There was a columnist. Did this guy get paid, gets paid to be a columnist by the Washingtonian named Bill O'Sullivan, who has a, a column called the loathe, loathsome, loathsome phrase of the day. And he goes on all words he doesn't like. Well, the one he's on right now, the phrase he doesn't like, he finds loathsome, is start a family. You know the expression, well, you've been married a few years. We're thinking about starting a family. Now, everybody out there, if you're married, uh, whether you're the husband or the wife, you remember having this conversation in your home. Are we ready to start a family? Well, I don't know. Do you think about, you know, whatever you thought about, whether you have, were settled, whether you're going to be moving. So, but this is an offensive phrase. And he says it's an offensive phrase because it starts starting a family. The term devalues any couple who doesn't happen to have kids. No, it doesn't. They just chose not to have a family. They're not being devalued. Um, and, you know, it sells short single people. I mean, it's got all these just, this prissy, everyone gets their feelings hurt about everything. Everybody's offended. And so you can't have a normal American human conversation, conversational phrase to start a family. I don't know if you have anything. Well, it, it goes to show that if you want to live in a free society, it means that at some point, somebody's going to say something to offend you. If you live into a, in a society where you're never, ever offended, then that means you're not free. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, you do get yeah, the right. And, you know, this idea that because this is always I go back to this left wing thought. They always think once they've arrived at a new uh, morally superior understanding of anything, they have the right to tell everybody else. This is what you have to think. This is how you think now. We have finally discerned that it's absolutely cruel to talk about starting a family so everybody has to stop talking about that mm-hmm. now. I mean, they actually think it's okay to do this. But also, Debbie, you know, in the efforts to totally tear down our society, to build it up the way they want to, um, they have to tear down the family. And yes. that's, that's, that's what right. this is part of because the family, the nuclear family is the building block of our society. It really is. And, and that's what, you know, without that, we are going to be a ship without a stern mm-hmm. or, you know, a rudder, whatever. And it's it's... We see it, it's getting crazier every day around mm-hmm. here with just the stories you've covered. Mm-hmm. It is. But the family, when they destroy the family, 
we're going to be in serious trouble. Yeah, you know, we've had that um, on a more serious note. I had that conversation in a show before about many left-wing writers. In fact, uh, the communist, uh, the naked communists, other left-wing writers have written about the idea that if you want to destroy the kind of culture of America, destroy the family. Well, Ben Shapiro gets to that point in this in this article. Um, he talks about this is the craziest thing, and that really has a more... You can mock the article that he's criticizing and say, well, that's crazy. He shouldn't be able to tell us what to say. But Ben Shapiro acknowledges, no, this is exactly, Chris, what you just said. It is to shut down the family. He talks a little bit about, he uses the expression, this is insanely dumb stuff. It's also the logical end point of the left's crusade to redefine the family to mean any two people who have sex with each other or any people who care about each other or any people who see each other in the subway station, by the way, that day. I mean, the family doesn't mean anything. It's just whatever they want to have it mean. And he talks about what a great thing it has been in American society, the responsibility that married people feel to think through when we start a family, what we mean by starting a family. So that's our cruise through the news. All those articles will be posted in the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. Too much fun for words. Top of the next hour, we're going to run through our rapid-fire question. We've got a great one this week, so we'll talk to you on the other side of the break. Except one more thing to tell you. We're going to talk in this next hour about this judge's order to the to, uh, district, uh, the Department of Justice lawyers to take ethics classes. It's a humdinger of an order. Talk to you after the break. for our second hour roundtable on Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. We're in our second hour roundtable and I have two of my leading ladies here tonight, Chris Davis and Carrie Kellerman. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> they were. Not, this was not planned. Okay. It's my birthday. So they brought, they have, well they had party hats on earlier but anyway, uh, <laughs> So I guess we had our birthday celebration right there. Okay. So in the second hour, we uh, try to have a little roundtable conversation of serious issues. And now you're making noisemakers. But, um, you know, we just love to do this. And I really do this in part because I really think that America is changing and in ways that aren't good. And I love to have these patriotic well-informed, America-loving, you know, women to join me to decode political talk, hash out headlines, just talk about what's happening in America. So I'm, we always do a rapid-fire question here, and I'm going to first have you hear a quick thing, uh, and you'll recognize the voice, and then you'll, uh, who said this quote, and then we'll go off on a rapid-fire. Pocahontas, well, no, she's, look, look, she is, she, is it offensive? You tell me. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry about that. Uh, Pocahontas, is that what you said? Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. So I, I really think if her record was exposed 
And the fact that she was a Native American, she said she was Native American, but she wasn't able to document it. She said, well, I have high cheekbones. You see, I have high cheekbones, so I'm a Native American. And she then, I don't know if you'd call it a fraud or not, but she was able to get into various schools because of the fact she applied as a Native American and probably able to get other things. I think she's as Native American as I am. Okay, Donald Trump, Republican <laughs> presumptive nominee for uh, the president, for the GOP. And so he's uh, relentless, continues to refer to Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren from Massachusetts, as Pocahontas. And so all over the news, you're hearing people say, man, this is really going to hurt him with the women's vote. So is it or is it not, Carrie? Um, well, it's not just Pocahontas. It's goofy Pocahontas, <laughs> according to Donald Trump. But no, it's not going to hurt it. If she were truly Native American then that would have been offensive. But she's not. She has blonde hair and blue eyes and a Swedish background. I don't <laughs> Cheekbones or not. So if you criticize somebody for not being who they are, aren't you criticizing their dishonesty and not their race? Exactly. What do you think? Is it going to hurt women voters? I think he voters? may lose the, the women voters at the Santa Monica College that are married to the ocean. <laughs> but that's about it. <laughs> That's a very good point. I have to say, it's so interesting lose because the ocean I, vote. yeah, lose the ocean vote. That's such a good point. You know, um, I do these, and the ebbs and flows. Okay, um, you know, I do these Fox News radio um, interviews all the time, and I I could, was surprised by how many of these hosts around the country would say, "But that that's really not very smart, don't you think? That's he shouldn't be doing that. He's going to lose the women's vote." I can't see it. It is not. He's calling her. This is not about Native Americans. It's about lying. It's like referring to Al Gore, you know, the Internet inventor. Yep. He's not. He lied. And it's right up there with loving to hear him call her crooked Hillary, you know, because he's he's calling a fact a fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just don't think it's hurt him with the women's vote at all. And I think that people who uh, it's funny because I think it's also grabbed. I, I you know, sitting in my office at home, I always have on the. Uh, news at one station or another and all of the you know talking heads are kind of saying kind of you know shaking their head and you know wringing their hands about this this is really really bad you shouldn't do this i find it completely entertaining actually i don't think that he should take any of their advice he's ignored all of it and has succeeded without it so i wouldn't listen to any of these people well, I think they thought they were going to tell us who our nominee was going to be. They want to run the show anyway, and they are a big part of the problem, the press, Absolutely. the press, that is. Yeah. You know, this is interesting, too, because she's one of the ones uh, there's talk about if Hillary were possibly to get indicted, that maybe uh, they, the party, the, GO, the uh, Democrats would try to bring in Joe Biden as to, you know, take Hillary's place and then Pocahontas would be his <laughs> vice president. And I think this is just is getting under her skin because she keeps tweeting about it and complaining about it. Mm. And all she does is I think she just helps Donald Trump. Mo- uh, most likely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I was going to jump into this other thing then, because we do, uh, in this Ladies Can We Talk show, we love to share new words because we are vocabulary builders here. So one word we have this week is perseverate. Perseverate, which means to go back over previously covered ground over and over and over and over. And that's kind of what Donald Trump does. I mean, in, a, in an entertaining way. Yeah. I mean, and I, what is refreshing about this Pocahontas thing is because a lot of Americans who do follow the news, and they do understand what uh, what Elizabeth Warren was able to accomplish. I mean, she ended up get being a Harvard professor mm-hmm. based on their, you know, just worship at the at the altar of diversity and American, Native Americanness or minorityness or something. And and people are just disgusted by it. And I just love he just Donald Trump just does does not care whether you're not supposed to say that or not. I, I think people it's part of his 
charm, if you want to call them that. It's like part well, of it's not politically correct. And people are so tired. We, what have we been talking about? The first is politically correct. How, what can you say? What can you not say? Are you going to get fined for not saying the right thing? We are, t- we are in verbal straitjackets, and we are just tired of it all. So to have somebody call a woman from a podium, darling, how throwback is that? How unpolitically <laughs> correct is that? And it's not hurting him at all. The women are going, oh, golly, at least some of them are. It's so nice to hear a man call a woman darling again. Yeah, I just think I, I love how exasperated his uh, lack of political correctness makes the media. They just they're shaking their heads. Why aren't all our rules applying here? We've told mm-hmm. them, you, you told America, you can't say this, you must say that, mm-hmm. and they just don't want to hear it. Okay, coming back after break, we're going to talk a little bit about the danger of the Black Lives Matter movement. Changing the tone, changing the tune. Talk to you after the break. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. For those of you who receive our weekly email, which um, if you'd like to get it, just email me at ladieskinwetalk at gmail.com and you can get our email. But we said in the email this week we're going to have a guest in the show tonight named Catherine Engelbright, uh, who's a you know conservative hero. She's a founder of True the Vote and she lives in Houston. And so today she emailed me and um, it's funny because I was sitting at my desk with a TV news on showing in Houston that they're evacuating people because of the flooding. And she sent me an email saying, I dropped my cell phone in the water. Yes, the flood water. And um, she lives in a rural area outside of Houston. She said she has no cell phone um, and no uh, landline. And so she basically is out of luck. So we're not having Catherine Engelbright on tonight, but we'll have her on again soon. So I want to turn to this story. I thought this was just a fascinating story and had caught our attention uh, several times. You know, in America, I I really believe this is true about this precious country. I I mean, 99.9% of all of us, we just want to love our country respect each other and our right to live our own lives. We don't want to control each other. We want just we want a, a country that is people where people are free, where we treat each other with respect and dignity. And we want to have a country where we just we assume that we're all safe to believe and think our own things. But so when we when President Obama was elected in two thousand eight, there was great excitement about the idea that maybe we'll make progress in race relations in this country. And that I think among the great things about America I think that race relations, generally speaking, in this country, they're not perfect in any country in the world, but I think America has made great strides because of the, the Judeo-Christian nature of our country, the goodness of the people. We want to be respectful of all of, all of God's children. But so there was great hope that President Obama's election would cause a, an improvement in race relations in this country. And so it, it, to me, it has done it, 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 race relations and actually poll after poll says even majority Democrats and majority Republicans will say race relations are worse under mm-hmm. President Obama. And so, which leads to the story I was going to ask Chris if she would tell us about. There was a speech about uh, call, called essentially the danger of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, why don't you take it away? Yes, well, I got my Imprimus magazine this week that I, I get monthly. And it was just this incredible story by this woman, Heather McDonald, who has a background at Yale, Cambridge, and Sanford, Stanford. And she's currently a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And so this speech that she gave, the article was an excerpt from it about how the Black Lives Matters movement, which started in about 2014, feels and and proclaims that the racist police officers in our country are the greatest threat to young black men today. 
And her premise uh, is that that is not true. Absolutely. And the, the Department of Justice has, has proven and has stated that the, the lie, hands up, don't shoot, did not, that, it, that did not happen. And yet that is the, the big premise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so the problem that this is causing in our country today is that crime rates are rising and that police are backing off proactive policing um, efforts that they have been doing over the past 20 years. And her statistics in her article were just absolutely incredible. She's uh, told that, um, you know, that every year 6,000 blacks are killed. That is more than the number of whites and Hispanics combined even though blacks are just 13% of our national population. And so until we can face that uncomfortable truth that the, the problem with crime is the black-on-black crime, that is the problem with the, the uh, killing of young black men and, and, and black children of you know, either sex. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the crime rates are just so high. It's the black-on-black crime. And that is something we don't want to face today, and that is something that Black Lives Matters refuses to acknowledge yeah this you know i know statistics are very hard on the radio and so against my better judgment i'm gonna give you a couple of statistics anyway from this article but we'll put a link to this on the ladies can we talk facebook page and i'm going to write a piece about it at the ladies can we talk.org website because this kind of goes the idea that you can't solve a problem if you can't deal with facts if you can't start with the facts as the premise for whatever opinions you form and just the black lives matter movement that began after the ferguson missouri incident in august of 2014 the whole idea as chris was saying was to try to paint a picture for america that the problem and with respect to violence uh there's a huge problem with respect to police officers shooting unarmed young black men so i'm just going to give you a couple of statistics over the last 10 years an officer's chance of being killed by a black man are 18.5 times higher than the odds of an unarmed black man being killed by a police officer. Officers are being killed by unarmed, uh, by, you know, by armed black men and in far larger numbers and the reverse is happening. And the thing that Chris mentioned too, that it came out of New York City, when New York City decided to tackle its crime problem, they, they had a drop in crime rates in, in New York City between 1990 and 2014, a drop of 85%. And the way they did this was an effort in New York City to have police officers be proactive, to not wait till a crime happens, jive in, try to figure out who, saw, who did it, but instead to be proactive, to be preventative, to say, to look at statistics, where are the crime problems happening, get in the neighborhoods. It had, and, and so you, they had mountains of statistics about where the crime is occurring, and because they were able to focus their efforts in the communities where it was happening, they actually reduced crime. And so this hideous outcome of Black Lives Matter taking hold and having officers fear for their lives and, and, and officers mocked and attacked by citizens is officers can no longer be proactive as they were. And because they can't be proactive anymore because of what the Black Lives Matter, the idea that's been planted in American culture, then they aren't proactive. And so the crime rates are going back up. And the numbers, I don't know if you have them wherever they are, this article is really lengthy, but it was a really profound thing because she's trying to say, you know, Black Lives Matter has misled America and it's actually hurting of all people the most. It's hurting 
blacks and other minorities in inner city communities because crime's on the rise and crime's on the rise because the police are afraid of being wrongly accused of violence toward young black men. And you know, the truth is there are individual incidences when police officers are out of line and of course, and or may engage in something that's considered racist. We investigate the daylights of it in America, but we're at the point where the, the whole focus of solving violent crime is off track. It's just, it, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, it's, Staggering. Well, and in the last year, murders are up in in seventeen percent in our fifty largest cities. In Milwaukee, they're up seventy two percent. In Baltimore, they've had the highest per capita homicide rate in its history. And you know, if the police just laid down their guns and and had no more, you know, uh, use of lethal force starting tomorrow, it would make a very trivial difference in the uh, the the death, the black death by homicide rate in our country. Because the crime is mostly black on black crime, not involving police officers. Exactly. And do you and, remember Rudy Giuliani in New York, um, how he really foc- you know, used this program to focus like a laser beam? And uh, crime rates dropped. And you remember the, uh, the phrase, you know, the broken window theory. Yep. And the, this proactive. And the people loved it. They weren't, there weren't drug dealers on every corner. Old people could go out and get their mail without being fear of being jumped. Kids could play outside. This is what this does to our country, to our families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I do want to, have, there's so much in this article by Heather McDonald and her speech, but I don't want to lose track of Carrie has this really cool story to share on this subject. Um, my husband is a, the yearbook advisor at Woodrow Wilson High School. And yes, uh, Friday morning they had their big reveal of this year's yearbook where the theme is made known to the student body and they receive their yearbooks and have the big signing party for the seniors. This year's theme was hashtag everyone matters. Um, and the cover design of the yearbook has every single student's first name, all 1,756 of them, followed by the word matters. Pedro matters. Alexandra matters. Joshua matters. And on and on all over the cover. So Friday morning they had a senior signing party. Uh, and he did. my husband was approached by one student who said, I find this offensive. I think it undercuts the Black Lives Matter hashtag and that Black Lives Matter um, movement. And so he began to talk to the student a little further and said, what exactly do you find offensive about saying everyone matters? And she just said, well, you know, it just, she, you know, it's just young head full of propaganda. And she just, you know, said that black people are being oppressed. And he said, well, and they were the most oppressed group of people and so she she, um anyway he talked to her about it and said you know martin luther king um didn't just talk about the black race he talked about everybody and then he had another student come up she showed up a little bit late and he handed her her yearbook and she took the book and she got misty-eyed and she hugged it and said i love this theme the interesting part of the story is that the first student was white the second student was black yeah, I love that because it makes a point a lot. I, it, well, I love that story. And you know what? We're, we may wrap a little more of this at the start of the next segment. But, you know, this the whole story about black on black crime and the real statistics and the real facts, they're not to be accusatory. Getting the facts straight just gives you, allows you to make solutions 
that actually can be impactful. If you're if you're making policy based on fallacy, then your policies aren't going to work. So we need to find need to find ways as Americans to actually sell in policies that will deal with the problem. That we're, so we're going to go on with this a little longer, and then we're going to talk about the Department of Justice lawyers. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Just love doing this show every week. I just, my only lament is it's too short. We barely get going in. Okay, so we were talking before the break about a speech that was given by a very renowned uh, woman named Heather McDonald. And she's with, currently with the Manhattan Institute. She previously um, had, uh, she's a very, very educated woman. And she gave a speech in April at the, at Hillcrest, Hillcrest uh, Hillsdale. Thank you very much. Hillsdale College. And what she was talking about there was trying to deal with the Black Lives Matter movement, what impact that it has had on America. And, you know, I, when I, we do these stories or we hear people talking about black on black crime, I, I picture in my head several of my very good friends who are black and thinking if they heard the words I'm saying, would it sound offensive? Would it sound upsetting? And the reason I want to say that is we always have to be careful to speak in a... Um, genuine, authentic, loving way, but we can't just agree to let lies um, ferment, let them let them continue to grow. So part of what happened, the Black Lives Movement that sprang out of the August 2014 incident in Ferguson, Missouri, where an officer did shoot and kill an unarmed young black man, but, you know, um, but as the outcome of that story or that this, what happened that day was captured in kind of a mob mentality, hands up, don't shoot. It was it, it took on a, a life of its own where the story got out that supposedly this young man had put his hands up and said, and said don't shoot, don't shoot. And the officer shot and killed him anyway for no reason. And we had in the show before, and I want to remind our listeners again, we had in the show this amazing thing that someone did. They actually took the grand jury testimony of all of the Every single bit of grand jury testimony the grand jury had to listen to in Ferguson, Missouri, when they were deciding whether or not to prosecute the police officer. They, they tried to get at, did that really happen? Did he really shoot at someone who was saying, hands up and, and don't shoot me, who had his hands up and saying, don't shoot me? And what this, this uh, play that was created, it didn't have one single word to, you know said or left out from what was presented to the grand jury and so and they had in the play they had a black character would portray a black witness at the grand jury a white character a white actor would portray a white witness and the bottom line of it all was as you listen to the actual testimony the grand jurors heard there's no way on this planet that anyone honest could have voted to indict the officer to recommend prosecution because as the story came out Hands up, don't shoot, never happened. But because that story got told and it got repeated and it became a mantra and it became football players, would, would they imitated NFL players, imitated that running out in the field, putting their hands up. You have hands up, don't shoot, or shirts. I still see them on people around Dallas. It was a complete lie. That's not what happened. In fact, the final witness at that grand jury who was in this play said... She actually uh, said to the grand jury, look, she's a black woman. She saw the whole thing. She said, look, I didn't want to cooperate. I don't like the police. I never talked to the police. I don't trust them. But that officer had no choice. He had been already 
punched by this kid once, this young man who was killed, and he was being charged by this very, this wasn't a, a small child, the young man who was killed in Ferguson. He was a very much adult-sized, very large man who was charging the officer with fist clenched, ready to, and this officer, I'm sure, feared, kill him. So this black witness, that was the end of the, of the testimony the grand jury heard. He had no choice. And so that story is what truth is. But this story of hands up, don't shoot gets spread and spread and spread. And so we have now communities when police officers try to go in the community and stop someone with suspicious behavior and say, hey, what are you doing? They, ha- they are just interfered with and mocked and ridiculed by people who are propelled by a lie. Mm. And this has been very harmful to American culture, to our cities, to our to police work to the ability to have a safe community that Chris was talking about before the break. You know, we had safe communities when we had more effective law enforcement, the black lives matter movement, the growth of that parallels the increase in crime starting in the inner cities from 2014. And that crime rate had gone down and down and down and down from 1990 till 2014 based on the ability of officers to be able to be proactive and stop crime before it happened by being in the community, by stopping people and saying, hey, what are you doing? Talking to people. How come you're hanging around on this drug, this corner known for drug deals at two in the morning? But they can't do it anymore. They're not willing to risk their lives, the officers, and they're not willing to risk the possibility of being falsely accused of some racist attack. So the Black Lives Movement has hurt black Americans. And take it away, Carrie. Yeah, this um, Everyone Matters theme of the yearbook, it, it puzzles me that anyone can find that phrase, Everyone Matters, offensive. How in the world does that offend somebody? And my only answer to that question would be, is if it's not really equal treatment you're after, it's preferential treatment. Because everyone matters means everyone matters. And I just want to read the, the quote inside the yearbook as to why they chose the theme. The cover design on the cover of this year's yearbook, we attempted to put the name of every student, followed by the word matters, representing our belief that every individual does matter. Your worth isn't found because your name is on a yearbook cover, but it is found in who you are. And in the difference you can make in the world around you, go and discover your worth. I love that. And I'm glad you um, took the time to read that. Well, we were getting in this segment. I guess I still want to go. And I want to talk about changing the subject entirely. But this Black Lives Matter stuff, I'll go back. One more thing is this. You know, every time a lie sits and spreads and we don't speak up, we're part of the problem. And I, in America, I talk about this and this, I, I sign my books at book signings. I always say, you know, speak up for America, speaking truth about America. I always say that's our, this show. We speak truth about America. America is a, is a wonderful, wonderful, precious country. The police officers in this country, the vast majority are good and noble people who actually are often putting their lives on the line to protect black Americans in crime ridden, high crime, inner city neighborhoods. They're the ones who are putting their lives at risk trying to defend uh, innocent people from crime in in those neighborhoods. So the idea that we've somehow turned truth on its head and officers are the problem, this is an egregious offense that that the Black Lives Matter has has per- perpetrated and it's it sadly it impacts uh, it causes people who don't know all the facts, who don't have 
don't have a worldview large enough to see all the facts. The innocent people start to believe this this stuff, this picture of, of America, because not enough of us are able to speak up and say what's true. So you got to speak up for your country. Okay, I do want to take, I, I know that it's very short on time in this story. We have like two and a half minutes, but I love the Department of Justice lawyers got ordered by a Texas judge to take ethics classes. You got to love it. Uh, don't mess with Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, U.S. District Court Judge Andrew Hannon sided with Texas and 25 other states to block Obama's 2015 executive order, uh, which was basically cr- granting benefits to illegals. Uh, and they had set a date of uh, an active date of February the 18th, and they started handing out benefits before that and lied in court about it. So when ju- does, uh, uh, Judge Hannon uh found out about the lies and found out about it um he he <laughs> uh he he decided to punish the federal uh, attorneys that were a part of this um this is the punishment that he handed down the government must provide the names of the individuals in each of the 26 plaintiff states that were granted benefits during the time in which the justice department promised or lied that no benefits were being conferred and any Justice of uh, Department of Justice attorney who wants to argue in a state or federal court in any of the 26 states must take an annual three-hour ethics course for the next five years. This is scathing. This was as far as this judge could go, uh, given the position he's in. But to rub salt in the wound just a little bit more, he quoted a child from the movie Miracle on 34th Street. This is Tommy Mara Jr. from that movie. Gosh. Everybody knows you shouldn't tell a lie, especially in court. <laughs> Amen to that. You know, I'm an attorney by background, and I practice law in California, did labor and employment litigation. And I think it's, it's sad that there's such a, um, and it's understandable, but people, uh, have, lawyers have such a bad reputation. People want to say, you know, oh, they, you know, of course they lie. They always lie. The truth is, you learn in law school, and you learn in every good law from this country, you don't even slightly mislead the court or the jury. You don't mis- you just don't mis- you don't do half truths. Your job as a lawyer is to tell the truth and most lawyers do. Yeah, we cannot pick and choose cafeteria style which laws we're going to enforce and which ones we're going to obey. We're either a nation of laws or we are not. Either the laws apply to all or they don't apply at all. Yeah, I love that. And on this order, this is I know this can sound kind of like gloating because Obama's uh, Department of Justice got rebuked. But I got to tell you something. This is really unusual, this order by this judge. These lawyers definitely misled the court big time. And I want to talk about a little bit more after the break. They, the exp- expression they used, instead of just saying, okay, we admit we lied, we said we made statements that did not match the facts. That lawyer doublespeak. We'll wrap this up, this subject, after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is our final segment at Races by Every Week. I want to, before we get off on the last few things we're going to talk about tonight, to thank our sponsor, GC Works, is a Dallas-based company, and they perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Thank you to GC Works for sponsoring our show. Okay, we were talking before the break about this the uh, order by a Texas judge to the Department of Justice attorneys, and you know, I, I'm fully aware how much people don't trust lawyers, and, and honestly, some of them deserve it. But I will. I just, it's really, I, it's important to understand how 
angry this judge was. And it's not political anger. It's just being misrepresented. And what part of what, the, what happened, because the Department of Justice lawyers misrepresented to the court, this executive order Obama issued, it had to do with a, you know, a... Immigration policy is too detailed to go into, but called DAPA, which is actually different from DACA, but D-A-P-A. And basically the, the deal was the judge had been, he believed that the order, executive order, was not being implemented. It was holding off and not going to do it until the court decided whether it was permissible, whether the executive order was constitutional or not. And the lawyers looked right in the judge and said, oh, no, we're not implementing it. And they were. And so in addition to the fact they lied is they deprived because these lawyers lied, they deprived the uh, plaintiffs, the one that brought the lawsuit, from the normal procedure you would take if something was ongoing and you want the, the, court, the, the uh, federal, uh, court, federal government to stop doing it until the court decides whether it's constitutional, you would pursue a temporary restraining order. You'd say, well, look, until it's decided, judge, tell them they can't keep doing the following this order and that's what they they didn't file for a tro temporary temporary restraining order because they were also deceived by these department of justice people so they really kind of they they got a great advantage out of lying to the court and the the judge i mean it was excruciating order to read he also said in the uh that the ethics classes that all the department of justice of lawyer department of justice lawyers have to take it's hundreds of lawyers that they can't be classed that it has to be certified by loretta lynch which has to just can completely infuriate her and they can't be taught by department of justice attorneys like they can't have the department you know internal guys go oh don't we're just mocking this we're not really it's a very serious order and you know you have to think about even if you are a hundred percent with president obama and you think his order his executive order on on immigration they're all wonderful and you wish you would do more of them it's a rule of law thing that if you lose that and you were carrie's making this point before the break you know, you just, you get to where the courts are just, uh, you know, kangaroo courts. So you, everyone goes in, the government lies. They say, oh, yes, we searched your house. We found this drug. You're thinking, that didn't happen. But, but you know, if you don't have truth as a standard, the whole trust in the system goes away. So it was a really uh, significant and embarrassing order, and I'm glad that the judge did it. Amen me to that. Too. Debbie, it just, to me, again, shows that the um, the culture of this administration is one of not telling the truth. And, you know, that was pretty much the culture of Bill Clinton as well. But this administration has perfected it. And it it just seems systemic within each department. They will just lie to get their way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And speaking of lying, a great segue to the next thing I want to talk about tonight. The show is always about, I I really, I, I am inspired to do this show. And the leading ladies are, for the same reasons, of just deep love for our country and wanting to have America stay on track and be exceptional and be great for for generations to come and one other issue that plagues america right now is the deception in the media and just the persistent attempt in most of mainstream media to it's partly just to sensationalize and make things controversial and you know eye-catching but it's also just a persistent liberal bent to most of media and i want to point out one thing that happened so as i get ready for this show or a lot of days i'm just sitting at my desk at home i have a tv on the wall and i have the sound muted and i'm just watching all the headlines and just saying anything interesting because i'm always working in something political one way or the other so i saw this headline scrolling across the bottom over and over and over and over and over and over and over saying donald trump tells californians that there is no drought 
Well, I mean, we, my husband grew up in California. We're out there all the time. Everyone knows there's a drought in California. I mean, there's, you know, there's water limits, limits in your water use, blah, blah. So they're trying to make Donald Trump look stupid and look like he's just, like he said, it's not hot in Texas in the summer or something like that. And, you know, the thing was you had to dive into the story. So don't trust any headline you see on television to start with. But you have to dive into the story and hear what he actually said. And do you want to roll with that? Well, one of the things that Donald Trump has done ever since he started having rallies is he has taught the people at the rallies. He said repeatedly, they're dishonest. The media, look at these guys back here. They're dishonest. They won't turn the cameras. They won't show how many people are here. They're trying to shape your opinion, not reflect what's really happening. They're, they're only showing me from the neck up. And it wasn't until he was at a rally in Illinois right before Christmas where he said, hey, you, t- turn the cameras, turn the cameras. And finally someone did, and the crowd went nuts. But he, every chance he got, the media is dishonest. Don't believe what they tell you. Verify it for yourself. But on this drought question, um, yeah, I wanted to say this because we lived in California many years. All our kids were born there. On this drought question, what is happening, which Donald Trump was aware of and actually made partial allusion to in his remarks, is that California's drought problem is in great part man-caused. It's, I mean, everyone knows you... You can have years and you don't have enough rain and you might have a drought. But in California, there's environmental policy and other policies. But the environmental policy he was referring to had to do with years ago, starting in um, 2008, when the Fish and Wildlife Service issued a biological opinion imposing water reductions in the San Joaquin Valley. And in essence, because of this, this desire to protect the Delta smelt, it's a little tiny fish, the Delta smelt, that the protections from the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service caused a redirecting of, redirecting of billions, as in B, as in boy, billions of gallons of water from the mountains east and north of Sacramento are channeled away from farmers and into the ocean. And it's funny because my husband grew up in a town very nearby in San Joaquin Valley where the farmers around that have been complaining for years, the protection of this Delta smelt fish is causing us to not have enough water to water our crops. So that's the real story. There are other aspects of it too. We could spend a whole show sometime on it, but environmental policy is causing farmers to not have enough water in their farms in California. And that's what Donald Trump was talking about. I mean, he could be a tiny bit more articulate, I'm going to say. he. I, as you listeners must know, he was not my favorite choice for candidate for a presidency. He's going to get the GOP nomination, and I, and I will happily critique things I don't like and praise things I do. But the truth is, he was on the right track with his story. He was on the right track. He wanted to... Um, you know, he wanted to make this point about the farmers, and but instead of, and he even said he met with farmers. He said they're sh- they're um, sh- uh, funneling the water off to the ocean, but that wasn't getting reported on the TV news I was watching. It was just like he's making him sound idiotic. Well, Debbie, I'm waiting for them to report that the farmers in the San Joaquin Valley are the new endangered species because <laughs> of this man-made drought by. The policies and and you know the fact that the uh, legislators in California are such environmentalists that they are not far thinking and looking at reservoirs and what is needed. While on the other hand, they're opening their borders and bringing in every illegal person they can and promising them everything in the world. 
It's it, a recipe for disaster. It, the, the whole, I mean, it's such a sad thing. We, we vacation in California a lot because my husband's family is out there. And our, actually, two of our three kids are out there. Um, and we love California. It's a beautiful place. The ocean is beautiful. The landscape, it just, it's just lovely. And it's being run by people who don't have any idea how to perpetuate freedom and liberty and a free market economy and entrepreneurship. It's just a, and, and you know, this environmental stuff. So I, I guess this story has several wings to it. What is it really matters to recognize the media is going to turn on Donald Trump even more than they have once he wins the nomination. They are going to twist everything he says. It's your job as a patriotic citizen to figure out what he actually says. You and then decide whether you like it or not. And actually, you know what? Since I've kind of beat this story, and I want to just ask this other question, and, and you can each have 30 seconds. I'm so curious. So I did all these Fox News interviews this week on the question Is Donald Trump going to suffer from the same problem that Mitt Romney had, where people say essentially, he can't understand people like me? He doesn't care about people like me. Romney lost that polling after the 2012 elections. Uh, by like 81 to 18, essentially, people saying Obama cares about people like me and Romney doesn't. So you think Trump is going to have that problem and we got uh, two minutes? I think he will not. Um, There are video clips of him saying when he was a young, maybe 30 years ago, saying I'm the the wealthy people in New York City don't like me very much. Uh, It's the taxi, the taxi drivers and the plumbers and the electricians um, he's the kind of guy that when the building was going up, he was at, he was involved in every single level. Uh, he would talk to the people pouring the concrete, talk to the people, you know, doing the steel. He just enjoyed the whole process. He enjoyed everyone involved. Uh, he has the managerial style of walking around, and people know it. He's been nicknamed the blue do- uh, blue collar billionaire uh, because he enjoys people of all economic levels. What do you think, Chris? Well, you know, Mitt Romney was a good man. He's a, a yes. very good man. But he does come off as an elitist. And, um, you know, just like Carrie just mentioned, the blue-collar billionaire, that is how Trump comes off. That's his persona. That's his shtick. And he's very effective in um, displaying it and communicating it to people. And so I think he will not have the same problem that Romney had because I think that he is much more comfortable in front of the TV, in, in front of, you know, able to to project what he wants projected. And that that is a more common man, billionaire. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, I had this same thought about him. I always thought Mitt Romney would have been a fabulous president. America would be a better place but if, he, if he'd won. But he was uncomfortable in his own skin, with his own money. Yeah. He's kind of more, um, you know, he's just more... Uh, I don't know. Just, just didn't want. And I think that Donald Trump is just or apologetic. Yeah, apologetic. Donald Trump is like, yeah, man, I'm rich, and I want you to be rich too. So I think you'll have a zero problem with empathy. Okay, so the show, this person turning music up is causing me to have to wrap the show up. So tune in to Ladies Can We Talk every Sunday at six to eight. You can listen online. Follow me at Debbie Can We Talk on Twitter. Definitely go to our Facebook page and our website, Ladies Can We Talk. And, you know, we just love talking about America. We love talking with you every Sunday. We love being with you, and we wish you a blessed, happy, and let's have a grateful Memorial Day weekend. Grateful for all the service of those who lost their lives for our country. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to ladieskenwetalk.org. Ladies Can We Talk. 
truth about America. 